Hello, everybody. This is you guys, Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. And this week, we're bringing to you the top five most depressing movies of all time, which I'm sure is exactly what you wanted. Um, nice way to end your week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Frank, you chose this list. This was like your idea. Why did you exactly want to um, do the top five most depressing movies? There's movies on this list that I really wanted to talk about, and I guess I couldn't think of any other way <clears throat> to work them in together. Um, this is the first list. Are you telling me the Emperor has no clothes? But <laughs> this is just an arbitrary yeah, yeah, yeah. organization of movies you want to talk about? No, no I mean... <laughs> There was one movie in particular, and I thought, like, what list does that go on? And then I started thinking about how it's kind of, like, bleak, and then I started working backwards from that. So, this is the first list where none of these picks would be what I would consider a nostalgia pick. Like, these are all movies that I genuinely think of as, like, pretty great films in their own right. Um, <clears throat> I think there's definitely four classic movies on this list and one, like, at least modern Maybe not classic, but an upper echelon, like, art house movie from the modern era, so. So, let's go ahead and just um, jump right in. Your number five pick on this list is a 90s cult classic, Welcome to the Dollhouse, directed by Todd Solence, his second movie, uh, which has a Rotten Tomatoes score from critics of 90% and audience score of 86%. Do you want to tell everybody a little bit about the movie and why you picked it? So, it's... Chronicles the life of a middle school girl named Dawn Wiener, <clears throat> who's bullied consistently. She's very socially awkward. Um, she's coming into puberty, so she's also kind of sexually awkward in like a really uncomfortable way. Um, the middle child in a family where her brother is like an academic success. And her younger sister is beloved by everyone, including her parents, more than her, uh, because she dances and because she's, like, cute and precocious. Um, Dawn has almost no friends. Like, her closest friend is a younger kid who's also a socially awkward, maybe, like, latent homosexual character. It's not really ever established, but definitely, like, another kid that gets picked on. Um, the only other thing she has that comes close to a friend is a school bully who's threatens to rape her that she kind of falls in love with and a much older high school kid who is getting tutored by her brother in exchange for being in his, um, I don't even know what you would call it, like polka rock band kind of <clears throat> that she feels like she's in love with, um, because she doesn't like know what love is. Um, just really kind of like one like gut punch after another, this movie. Um, it was actually a toss-up because when this is one of the movies kind of like working backwards where I started thinking about Todd Solence and how like that's just really is his bread and butter is making movies that are as opposed to being like a celebration of life. They're kind of like a referendum on humanity in a lot of ways. Like they show the lowest points that humanity can like sink to. Um, the other movie I thought of for him is Happiness, which... In my opinion, is the better film, but it's a little more of like an ensemble piece. Like it follows like a lot of different stories. Whereas to me, the fact that this just focuses on kind of like the tribulations of this one girl who you sympathize with, but you also kind of 
like come to despise as well. And in that sense, it's also <clears throat> sort of makes you feel bad as a person because she's so, so awkward. But then again, like she's a bully in her own way too, though. She she bullies because she's bullied, sure. and she's bullying to her friend Ralphie, right. the younger kid. Um, tries to bully her sister, although her sister is more of like a bully to her. Um, definitely confused, uh, doesn't understand like why she's picked on, like doesn't see what's different about her, I guess, than other people. Um, Actually kind of, like, inspiring in some ways, because despite the fact that she's constantly, like, belittled and abused, that she still tends to kind of maintain, like, the hope and, like, a positive outlook. Yeah. <clears throat> One um really terrible scene towards the end of the movie where she has to give a speech in front of the school, and, like, the entire auditorium is, like, chanting at her. And she's obviously, like, taken aback and nervous, but she continues... With like and finishes speech. the speech, yeah, yeah, um, but just I don't know, like <clears throat> to me, you know, we grew up in a less like kind time, I guess. Like, I think things are a little more politically correct, and it's a lot less acceptable to bully now. But like when I was growing up, it was just a part of life. Like you were going to get picked on by somebody, and you were probably going to pick on other people. And I think this is. Like, some of his other movies are a little more absurd, I think, in the way that he presents situations. This one is more... There's some absurdity to this movie, and it definitely is, like, a black comedy. But it's also, I think, a lot more, like, realistic in its portrayal of school and childhood and just how terrible it is to be, like, young and awkward. Yeah, I mean, I think the bullying was much more direct back then as opposed to now. I think... It still exists to some degree. It's just that it's passive aggressive, a lot of times. Yeah, that's um, probably true. I mean, I not that I teach high school, but like kind of seeing some of it with like you know that thirteenth grade mentality. Yeah, um, you certainly see these like kind of like this low key you know shade that gets thrown at you know different students when they say something in class, and um, you know, I, I think it's also a lot more prevalent. I mean, through, like, social media and whatnot, like, yeah. it's a lot more prevalent in, in the abstract, mm -hmm. where if you're going to be bullied, it's not going to necessarily be face-to-face -face as much as it is, yeah. like, behind your back or through whatever, like, the amorphous blob that is, like, Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Um, I mean, you know, I have a 17-year-old son, so this has been something that we've talked about a number of times, because I'm always curious, like, how life is in school. <clears throat> and from his perspective, you know, he feels like he's never been picked on and he doesn't really see it happen to a lot of people. Um, so I don't know. But I mean, definitely, like when I was a kid, the things that happened in this movie, you know, to um, to the, the Don Wiener character are things that I can like distinctly remember like happening to people around me. No, I, um, I absolutely remember that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of like social status shaming in this movie. Um, there's a lot of like vague and direct like sexual threats. Um, there's a lot of mockery of people based on their sexual orientation, like implying that someone is like weak or bad for like possibly being homosexual. Mm -hmm. um, including like a pretty uncomfortable scene where Dawn's just trying to find a place to eat, like early in the movie at lunchtime, and 
this girl who's also obviously an outcast, like, implies to the cheerleaders that, well, not implies, she specifically states that Dawn's, like, trying to, like, make out with her. Mm-hmm. Um, just in order to get the cheerleaders <clears throat> to make fun of Dawn instead of making fun of her to, like, move along. Um, yeah, just really, I mean, Solence is probably, like, the modern master of the uncomfortable situation mm-hmm. where he'll push... Like, he doesn't hold back when he pushes the idea that something is, like, just how poorly people can treat each other. Mm-hmm. And again, like, in Happiness, it's much much more graphic and much worse. Yes. Um, this movie, again, a little more believable just in the sense that it's, like, just about, like, her being bullied and her trying to cope with it. Yeah. I, I think beyond uncomfortable, I think he's also the master of making you laugh despite... Oh, yeah. How uncomfortable it is. Yeah, some of the worst things. I mean, happiness, obviously, like, has, like, some some of the more grotesque examples of that, probably, yes. where you laugh in spite of yourself. And then uh, immediately the, feel, like, dirty for laughing. Sure. But, I mean, there's, there's a, it's like, uh, you're talking about, like, the implied, like, not implied, like, the, what is the, the, the bully boy? Yeah, when um, Brandon is the kid Brandon, the bully. When, when Brandon calls her on the telephone... Uh, and wants to talk to her, and it's after she's like kind of escaped um, him after school, and he and he calls up her home and tells her it's like, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna rape you, <laughs> rape you tomorrow, same time, same place. And she's um, like, okay, right, and she's like, okay. Well, she's nervous because of her mother, like, but still, it's like it's it's a ridiculous line. It's absolutely absurd it when you hear it, and it's laughable, like. Um, the, and the even idea, worse, like when they actually meet, and then they go to like the abandoned industrial park or wherever it is. Right, like, like I mean, oh, it's it's the whole thing is just awful and tragic because it's like she thinks it might happen and she still goes anyway. Like, and you don't want to probably talk about the implications of why she thinks that's okay, but uh, I mean, um, I, I I think it merits like talking about those implications. I think that she's. Somebody that feels like she has no love from, like, any quarter in her life. And even, like, this, like, implied violent love to this character is more, I don't know, like, self-assuring than the fact that, like, nobody, like, that her family doesn't even care that she exists. And her she has no friends. I mean, there's so many small things that, I don't know, it's, just, it's, it's such a... I guess, like, this is... I don't know if this is Heather Matarazzo's, like, first performance. It's got to be, like... Actually, I think this is her first performance. I'm not sure. Um, But just such a... Like, she was pretty young. I mean, like, early teens, I think, when she made this movie. Yeah. Um, But such, like, a... Like, a virtuoso performance of, like, an awkward... Just confused, sad... Yeah, one of the things I have in my notes is the... Is the child performances he gets in this movie yeah are stellar yeah they're all really good i mean and and it's like i i i walked away thinking about those performances and i was thinking about do the children even know exactly what it is they're saying sometimes yeah and it's like because it's almost like i would think that they have to have some sort of understanding in order to To deliver the lines the way that they do, or is he just directing them to say them in a very specific way, and they really don't have any cognizance? I mean, her, her delivery a lot of times because there's the scene where, so she's in love with Steve, who's the older, like popular Playboy kid, and 
genuinely believes that she's going to be this man's like girlfriend and seeks out some ex of his and like is getting advice like what it's am the I exact scene to do? I was thinking of exact one and so from the other girl's perspective who's obviously like she's smoking a cigarette and she's like right. more worldly yes and is giving like legitimate advice about what Dawn should do like Dawn doesn't understand the question she's asking she's just asking what she thinks she's supposed to ask right I mean to her it's like I think she feels that that's, like, her validation as a person is somebody, like, desiring her sexually but doesn't have any comprehension of what that means. Mm -hmm. And is just, like, saying things that she thinks she's supposed to say. Well, I... Right. Well, in that scene specifically, the the reason I was thinking of it is because um, she asked that girl whether she had sex with Steve or not, and the girl says that he just fingered her the previous summer. And when... He go when Steve's over at the house. She decides to try to impress him by playing the piano, and she asks um, if he wants to see her fingers and holds up her hand. And the way that when she says it, it's it's funny and sad at the same time. But it's like that's what I'm saying. In order to get that performance, does she does she at like twelve or thirteen know? And I this is something I don't know. Does she know what she's saying? Like, does she know the joke? Like, what the joke is yeah. that that this little girl misunderstands. The idea, the concept of, of fingering, and she's holding up her own hands, like you know, like do you want to see my my, my fingers? You know, she she's not even cognizant enough of sex to understand what what was being discussed. So she's in seventh grade in the movie. The characters in seventh grade because yeah. she's got a couple years to high school. Because that's one of the one of the, like the undercurrents is the fact that it doesn't get better when I get to high school. Because she obviously, for being like clueless in a lot of ways, is still like like acutely aware of how unpopular and like hated she is Mm. even if she doesn't understand why so i mean i feel like when i was that age i knew like those things um so maybe she knows i think that it's an uncomfortable implication either way really like if she knows or not i think boys know that stuff maybe sometimes before all girls do yeah and she just i could be wrong like there's so many so many small moments in this movie that are just really when she comes out at the party and she's dressed in like, what is it like a, like a animal print, like fur halter top thing and like hot pants. It's like leopard hot pants, yeah. but like blue neon leopard hot pants. Oh, are still it's, it's, it's and then right. she gets pushed in the pool. But I mean that and that kind of stuff really sends me back over that time period, like to that early nineties like yeah. time period of like the way people dress like that. Um, yeah, it really sent me back to childhood in that way. So I'm trying to clarify, like, maybe if you could clarify for me. It's like we've talked about a couple of things. And I obviously see why they're depressing, um, but it's like what, what what's the core of this? Of like why this is on this specific list of being depressing? Like what is it that you find so um, so I mean, draining about it? I guess. Growing up during like this exact time, and I was just a little older than what this character is. Like during like maybe like three years older, I guess, than what she's portrayed as. When this movie was released, and I saw this movie pretty, pretty close to its like VHS release, I think, like maybe within like a week or two of it coming out on VHS. Um, I mean, I was like picked on sometimes in school, and also could be like a terrible bully sometimes myself. And I think that like seeing that time period portrayed in that way, it really like hits close to home in a lot of ways, and. Like, I knew girls that, like, 
you know, for better or worse, were like Don Wiener, like that were a little gawky and a little awkward and didn't dress necessarily the same way that like, you know, the other girls dressed. I mean, there's a very distinct style from that time period. And these girls were a lot of times were girls that were very like religious or whatever and were dressing like differently, like more matronly, I guess. And it just makes me like feel bad a lot about number one, laughing at her treatment, but still like there's some regret to it and some, I don't know, almost like, like survivor's guilt, maybe like that's mm-hmm. a really harsh way yeah, 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 because but... obviously whatever, like none of my experiences are like equate to the horrible things that she goes through. But I don't know. Like I, I've seen this movie three times and I saw it like on its VHS release. Um, I saw it maybe three or four years after that. Um, when, after watching happiness in the theater, like rented it again. And then just a few weeks ago in preparation for this list. And I don't know that it's necessarily a movie that I ever enjoy watching, but it's definitely a movie that I appreciate watching. Um, I think Solence is really uneven as a director, but in this movie and Happiness specifically, um, he's pretty masterful in the way that he just films, like the way he holds tension in a scene with his camera. No, absolutely. I agree. Um, the way that he draws performances out of people that are awkward and uncomfortable. Um, it's just, um, I don't know. Like, again, it's, it's not something where I'm going to, there's movies on this list that I like to watch and that I've watched multiple times because I enjoy them. Mm. And this is not one of those movies, but I think it's still in the way that evokes like a very specific time in people's lives in a very specific time, like, like culturally or sociologically. Um, I, I think it's a really accurate and really, I don't know, just realistic portrayal. <clears throat> and there's, again, like he can be absurd in his movies and, like other films that he's done have more absurd qualities like storytelling. It's yeah. an absurd movie. Yeah. Um, but this movie is probably his most like realistic portrayal of like the family structure and school structure and the fact that like the adults in this world blame her for getting bullied pretty much. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like really like a really sad way to look at life and like you can just you could just feel like her sorrow like come through on the screen and you can feel like her like just abject confusion as to why she's treated this way when to her mind like she's not any different than anybody else um i don't know just really uh really difficult to watch but really masterful and definitely like a moving uh film i think yeah ebert ebert gave it four stars and Spends a lot of time actually talking about how much he associates um, or, um, I guess, empathizes with the Dawn character. Um, he, he even admits that um, his nickname in um, uh, in middle school was Egbert. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, he like the. I, I guess the the only thing out of his review that I really took away was um, he talks about. Solence's attention to detail in this movie and how that it's it's the detail that's the key to the satire um, that's going on in it and um, um, talking about like the little details about like how Dawn looks at herself in the mirror and 
you know, um, like, you know, the, the way she dresses that she talked about. And it's like, you know, there's all these little things like have to exist in order to really sell, like, you know, what's going on in that movie. Yeah. Um, and then he says that, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's one of the things he took away is like just how narrative for Solens was in this movie in terms of sure. the small details. And I think we're kind of saying probably something similar with. Yeah. And again, like, I, I think that happiness is the better film. Um, and probably like a little more depressing overall, but because it's such like a, such a wide, I mean, I know that it's like a family, but it's such like a wide range of like stories that it's telling, like this one being so personal and the fact that he does fill it with these small, like personal moments that are just like devastating at times, like just makes it, I think more impactful upon like first viewing and like repeat viewing. Yeah. I don't know that I can ever watch Happiness again, to be honest with you. That movie's real tough to watch. Uh, so. Yeah. I've only watched it the once, so I could probably do it one more time. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it a couple times. Yeah. Uh, what, one piece of criticism I'll have you address real quick when we move on um, is Jonathan Rosenbaum from Chicago Reader. I <clears throat> uh, gave it a two out of four stars. And he says that when he first saw it, uh, this is when the, uh, this, he, this is upon second viewing for him. He says when he first saw it that it was um, it was a quirky, troubled but likable black comedy. But then he watched it again with another live audience and talks about um, some the strident laughter that he heard like during the viewing, um, kind of made him squirm. He says, and uh, you know, and it made him really uncomfortable because he said it was like ugly in some um, in some ways is what I saw on the screen. Um, and he said he doesn't blame Solens for that, for the reaction of the audience, but he says uh, that he wishes he had better control um, over some of the demons he set loose um, in the movie. And kind of hints that he's a little irresponsible, maybe, in the movie with some of the things that he does. I mean, I can certainly see that claim being made about happiness, possibly. Yeah, I mean, I understand um, that criticism. Except that I think that... So we, like, on this podcast, we talk a lot about... Um, like emotional reactions to movies yeah. and I always think that the best thing about movies <clears throat> is like I always say it's their immediacy right yeah. so the reaction that a movie elicits from you I think is like the best mirror to like who you are yeah. like how you react to something happening on screen whether it's like shock or horror or titillation or laughter I mean I think it I think it like reflects who you are as a person and I like I know this is classified as a dark comedy and there's like a few times in this movie, especially watching it a couple weeks ago, where, like, I nervously laughed, but I don't really find this movie funny. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe people that find this movie funny, I think maybe it says something, and I think that's kind of an important... Like, it's an uncomfortable tactic, but it's an important tactic that filmmakers have to kind of... Yeah, the laughter is either uncomfortable or in spite of the situation. It's, like, so outrageous you can't do anything other than, like, yeah. laugh. I mean, that's true, like, in happiness yes, as well. And right. So, you know, storytelling and palindromes. Yeah. I mean, oh, I mean, like, the, the, the right thing that I was talking about earlier, it's like, I, it's like, I laughed when he said, when he said same time, same place. Like, I laughed, like, despite the horror of what was actually happening in that scene, because it's, like, she doesn't understand what's going on. I don't think he necessarily understands what he's and even he saying. He you know, I mean, he doesn't know what he wants to do. Right? Yeah. Like, and but it's like so. The whole situation is like it's it's it's, it's laughing at the absurd. It's, like, it's interesting, and like I don't want to like go too much more on this movie, yeah. but like when you look at what's currently happening 
in politics, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea that there's a large group of people that are saying, like, well, this is just what, what boys do. And I think this is one of the first movies that shows that that's not, like, an acceptable response, that this isn't just, like, normal behavior. I mean, because that Brandon kid, Brendan, whatever his name is, he um is not, like, a well-adjusted, you know, child. I mean, he's got, like, a broken home life. He's got... I think it sort of like insinuates that at some point maybe he was abused or at least like neglected <clears throat> and he's just like aping what he's heard other people say. And, you know, I think it kind of calls into the, into light that, you know, maybe we need to educate our children more on like the proper way to behave. But at, you know, this time when this movie takes place, like there were people just would have like said, Oh, well that's just him being a boy. And, you know, even though, like, he never goes through with it, and obviously, like, he has some affection for Dawn, um, probably because of her hero worship of him in a lot of ways. Um, I don't know. Again, it's... it's it, it makes you... Because it involves children and because it involves such, like, harsh themes, I think it makes you, like, question humanity and the way that, like, we react to situations and the way we raise our children and the fact that Dawn has kind of been raised, like, by absentee parents in a lot of ways because they're much more concerned with their other two children. And Brandon. Yeah, well, I mean, his parents are, like, legitimately absentee. The fact that his father's, like, an implied alcoholic and, like, insurance fraud committer. Right. (coughs) I don't know. Yeah. Um, No, I think think that's a good point. I mean... Really, like... I think if you laugh at this movie, I think maybe you need to take... Like, if you, like, legitimately laugh at this movie, you might need to take, like, a long look at, like, your own, I don't know, like, ideas of what society is and your own morals or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it makes me sad for her, like, every time I've watched it. And just as effective, you know, whatever, 20, 20 years, like, after the fact. Sure. Watching it a couple weeks ago. Because I, I think Happiness is 98, and I'm pretty sure the last time I saw this movie was... After we went to see Happiness in the theater. Yeah. So probably 20 years since I've yeah. seen it. So, yeah. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to number four. Okay, so number four you have the classic Midnight Cowboy from 1969. John Schlesinger was the director, starring John Boyd and Dustin Hoffman in pretty famous roles. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 90% from critics, 88% from audience. Hmm. For those who haven't seen it, do you want to go ahead and just briefly describe what this movie's about? Uh, so Voight plays Joe Buck, who's a less than savvy cowboy from Texas who decides that he's going to move to New York and ply his wares as a hustler to rich socialites um, by being a cowboy. Uh, moves to New York, gets a hotel room, um, ends up with a rich woman who also might be a prostitute. Um, who takes his money um, and kind of kicks him out after he, after shaming him for asking her for money for having sex with her. Ends up meeting up with um, Ratso Rizzo, a Dustin Hoffman character, who acts like he's going to introduce him to a pimp, but actually introduces him to some, like, crazed religious zealot. Um, Buck runs out of money, ends up on the streets, um, has a uncomfortable homosexual encounter with a young kid in the theater. Um, ends up meeting up with Rizzo again, trying to shake him down, but doesn't have the heart to like perform any kind of harm to him. They end up living together. 
they go to a Andy Warhol-esque party. Um, Rizzo's health is, like, deteriorating pretty rapidly. Uh, it seems like he has, like, I don't know, consumption maybe, or, like, what else is that called? Anyway, he's sick. Um, Joe Buck ends up hooking up with a rich socialite at the party who agrees to pay him $20 to sleep with her. Um, can't perform until she implies that he might be gay when he's, like, all of a sudden able to perform sexually. Um, comes back excited because of his newfound prospects, maybe, of actually being, like, a gigolo to the wealthy. Um, and finds Ratso, like, dying and asks him to be put on a bus to Florida. Um, on their trip to Florida, you know, Rizzo dies, and that's pretty much it. Like, they... Joe Buck, like, closes his eyes and is, you know, with his friend. Um, really, it's kind of a, it's a difficult movie. I mean, that's, I guess, like, the encapsulation of the movie. There's a lot more to it than that. Um, there's a lot of implication that Joe Buck himself was probably abused by his grandmother, <clears throat> who took him in after his mother left him. Um, there's also... A mentally unstable woman that he was having a relationship with that was generally considered to be like the town whore. Um, it's implied, I think, at points that maybe Joe Buck was in jail for a time because of an implied because she's gang raped at one point, like while they're having sex, like he's pulled off her and she's gang raped, and maybe that he was accused of the rape. Um, and then also he might have gone into the military at some point. I mean, there's like a scene, like yeah. in a flashback where he's going to see his grandmother um, who's passed away and he's in his military uniform. Uh, generally a good hearted, but clueless character. I mean, he's like generous and friendly, but just completely not savvy to the way like the world works, especially in a big city like New York where he really is just a bumpkin. <clears throat> um, I mean, I get the impression that Joe Buck is a little slow as well. Yeah, maybe. Definitely. Functioning. Yeah, he's but. definitely not. He's not like wise to the ways of the world. He's got like no street smarts whatsoever. Yeah, right. All he's got is the fact that he's good in bed and he's a handsome, like, young man. Right. And he thinks that that's enough to get him yeah. by without understanding, like, anything that he's getting into. Right. Including getting locked out of his hotel room <laughs> at one point. Um, because he can't afford to pay for it and yeah. not understanding that. And it's just, you get the impression that, you know, Rizzo is maybe fake, like, street smart. I mean, he definitely knows how to survive mm -hmm. being homeless, but with no real, like, marketable. I mean, he's got an obvious, you know, physical, um, physical handicap in the sense that, like, one of his feet doesn't work, so he walks with a limp. Um, just, it's, it's really interesting because there's a lot of really sad moments in this, this movie, but it's also kind of like a hopeful sort of look at like friendship and yeah. even in like the lowest situations, like people like clinging to each other and finding strength in each other. Um, I actually had no idea until after like we talked about this list and watching this movie again that, um, Schlesinger was, was openly gay. Mm -hmm. um, so there is like some I mean there's obviously scenes a couple scenes in the movie where Joe Buck like agrees to you know perform homosexual acts for money 
Um, the one time, and actually I didn't know this either, but uh, it's, it's Bob Balaban that yeah, plays, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kid who wants to fillet Joe Buck and they can't afford to pay him. Right. Um, and then Joe Buck hooks up with another like older man who can pay him, but kind of like balks at the idea of having sex with a man for money and like beats him and robs him um, to get the money to pay for their trip to Florida. Um, I think... I mean, I don't know if slow. I think just maybe clueless. Yeah. And he, he definitely, towards the end of the movie, when they're on the trip to Florida, and he ditches the cowboy outfit that he refused to, like, give up on before for normal clothes and finds that he has, like, a... Like, this woman's attracted to him, the waitress or whatever she is, and actually has some hope that he can start a life in Florida just by, like, getting a real job and just working. Um... So I think he kind of, like, wises up over the course of time. I mean, I think he really is just, like, a hillbilly and a yeah. pumpkin and somebody who wasn't raised necessarily in any kind of way that prepared him to be on his own in the world. Um, brilliant performances by John Voight and Dustin Hoffman. Um, Hoffman, in particular, like, maybe one of the more iconic performances of his career, which is saying a lot from an actor who's had some really iconic performances. But, um, you know, his, his speech affects that he, that, that Ratso has, um, the way he delivers dialogue, uh, the way that he like walks and how skittish he is. I mean, there's a lot of, for a guy that has like all this <clears throat> bombast and, you know, who acts like he knows everything, just obviously like one of the lower, on the lower end of the scale of society, sure. like, well, he's squatting and, you know... Squatting and eating, like, food that he finds or right. steals. and yeah. Like, everything's dirty. Like, one of the more disturbing things in this movie, and it's really small, but um, they're in the apartment at one point where they're squatting, and they're, it's after... I can't remember. They're, they're talking about what Joe Buck needs to do to earn money, and Joe Buck's coffee cup just has, like, these black stains from the coffee because they've ne like it's never been washed. And he's still drinking out of it, and it's so, like, disgusting. But to them, it's just, like, normal. Yeah. That's just how they, that's how they live, yeah. and how they have to survive, and I don't know. I mean, it's, like, it's almost like the opposite of, like, the Horatio Alger story, where, like, you know, young man goes west and seeks his fortune. It's, right. like, young man comes east and right. is basically, like, destroyed. Falls in the Yeah. But poverty and despair is able to grow out of it just through this friendship with this guy that ostensibly is like a parasite. I mean, I think that Joe Buck has changed for the better by the end of that movie. Agreed. There, I thought you meant you mean you mean like in some sort of like spiritual, spiritual emotional yeah, sense, like yes. definitely not financial. That's right. He has to, <laughs> okay, he has to beat yeah. and rob a man in order to get out of New York. Yeah. But yeah. <clears throat> at the same time, he's doing that out of love for his friend, and I think it's shown that even though. Which is, right, and I think that's one of the more powerful scenes in this movie to me, like, in my notes, it was, like, it, it's, it's, the, the, the scene where Joe Buck, and I, I, I get the impression that he always meant to rob the guy, he, but he was being hesitant about it more than he was going to actually have sex with him. I think he was trying to get the man to pay him without... Without actually performing anything, yeah. right. But then he realized that it wasn't enough. Yeah, when, when, when Joe Buck, you know, because he's still hesitant when he's even, like, when he's attacking the man to some degree, he, like, doesn't want to do it. But it's, like, the fact that he goes that far, I mean, as awful as that assault is, I mean, for his character, um, it's out of love. 
Yeah. You know, true. for his friend. I mean, that's the only reason he's doing it. Joe Buck wouldn't go that far if it were just his own survival on the line. Um, and and I, that doesn't, because when he has the chance to shake Ratso down, right? Um, like towards the midpoint of the movie, yeah. you know, his inability to be, to like harm anyone else. And that's kind of shown, because I think he genuinely loves the Crazy Annie character. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's why they flash back to that so much. Yeah. And he's not able to save her, so maybe in this way this is... Yeah someone else that showed him genuine affection and he feels like this is his time that he can actually save someone. Um, Interesting, one of the, one of my favorite parts of this movie, um, not subtle at all, but like it it struck me this time watching it, it was the repetition of everybody's talking at me throughout the first like 35, 40 minutes of the movie. <clears throat> where any time that Joe Buck is transitioning from scene to scene, it's that song playing. And, I mean, obviously, like, on a very, you know, whatever, like, non-subtle level, it kind of is like Joe Buck, like, people are, like, saying things to him and sort of giving him clues that maybe his plan isn't the best, but he's just kind of, like, plowing through it. But then there's a point in that movie where that song doesn't play for a long time, and I think it's Joe Buck's realization that he's not going to be successful and that he just needs to survive. Um, I find this movie, it's it's depressing in the sense that even though they're not necessarily good characters, like you you form a feeling of affection towards Buck and, and Ratso and you're sort of pulling for them to succeed. I was going to say rooting, but... Yeah. Um, even when... Even when, you know, Ratso's, like, obviously, like, dying, <clears throat> you know, he's got a really high fever, he's incontinent, like, on the bus. You want to believe, like, him, that if they get to Florida, it would be yeah, okay. Yeah, like, that's, that's the right. thing. And they have that, Ratso has that fantasy of them down in Florida and, like, yeah. living this, like, good life and women surrounding them. Um, I mean, I don't know, again, like, you know, I didn't know that Schlesinger was, was like, openly gay. Um, but I don't think that they have a gay relationship. I just think I don't think there's a home I don't think there's a homosexual element to their relationship beyond the fact that it's two men that love each other and rely on each other for their survival. Yeah. Like I don't think there's romantic entanglement there. Right. But I think that Joe Buck is finding that for the it's first platonic time Platonic love. Yeah, yeah, since Crazy Annie, like he actually loves somebody. Yes, I agree. Which I think is why like the implication from the socialite that he might be gay is what spurs him to like be able to perform sexually again. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, to your point earlier, is what spurs him to, like, you know, brutally beat a man mm-hmm. and rob him in order to save his friend. Right. <clears throat> yeah, because, I mean, he has the choice earlier with the Balaban character to attack him if he wanted to. Yeah, he you doesn't know? even and, take the guy's watch. No, I mean, he just no. lets him go. He's right. I don't want him. Yeah, I don't want your watch. And he's done something that to yeah. him is, like, degrading. Um, sure. I also think that it might be implied at one point, like, when they flash back to the the crazy Annie gang rape scene that maybe Joe Buck might have been raped as well. Yes. Um, I don't know if... I, 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 from what I understand, the novel fleshes that out a lot more. Yeah. Like, that whole backstory, and I do think that is part of that, is that he himself is a victim of rape. Um, uh, homosexual rape. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, that's kind of how they, like, they throw him over the... naked over the car, and they're, like, holding yeah. him down from behind. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which is, obviously part, which is part of why he's so... Um, skittish about the idea yes. of like being with another man right yeah you know it's 
it's a pretty shocking movie, even for 1969, oh, yes. to come out of America, yes. I think. Um, I'm pretty sure that this had an X rating at one point, when the X rating still existed. Yeah, I think when I was doing research, I believe that was correct. Yeah. Um, and definitely, like, for as much critical acclaim as it received, um, not a movie that you would think of as being like a like a popular classic, really, because it is it has like some really dark themes to it. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't shy away from like presenting those themes, I think, in a pretty not necessarily graphic, because there's not really any like graphic sex in the movie, but there's definitely the implication of graphic sex. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um and not something that I think that most of America would be comfortable like the themes and whatever. But then again also like some pretty like classic themes in terms of like love and survival and like what you're willing to do in order to protect the people that you care about. Yeah, I saw this. I mean, this was the one that out of rewatching all these movies, well, watching one of them for the first time, but rewatching all of these, it's the one that had the most emotional impact on me, which I did not expect when I went into watching it. I saw this um, during that summer, during, during, during that time that I had surgery and my mom was getting me all those, like, you know, famous movies. Um, so that's like 93, 94. Yeah. So I think I was one, even though I understood the plot, I think I was way too young to actually take any kind of anything away from this movie in terms of theme or emotion or anything like that. And I was actually surprised like how hard this like hit me, like by the end of that movie in the last 15 minutes, um, as you know, Ratso's dying. And I really thought that I wouldn't be impacted by like the end because it's been parodied so many times. Like, you know, like that, that, that ending is like parodied, like in so many different ways, like Seinfeld does it, you know, like famously, I think. Um, um, and I didn't know if I could have that emotional reaction, but yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard to watch like all that. I mean, um, and, and, and it is intimate by the end. Like it's him holding him intimately. Um, by the end there is kind of like to some degree also him being okay with holding a man in an intimate way, like really for the first time in the movie. Um, even though he's dead. Yeah. Um, so I do see some acceptance there in some ways of, of some things. So that's why I think I agree that like he, he's definitely in a better place. I think even despite that at the end of the movie. Yeah. I think uh, that's true. Um, I just want to take a few minutes to go over some, some critical things with you. Um, okay. Dave Kerr from the Chicago mm-hmm. reader. Wild guest. Do you like this movie or not like this movie? Yeah, he doesn't like it. Yeah, he didn't like it. He's part of that 10%. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Uh, he says that the the acting showy and instinctual is most of the movie. I think that's probably a positive for him. The visual style is too forced and chicly distended to let the drama acquire much natural life of its own. It's a film that expresses a great deal of disgust towards homosexuals while placing a sympathetic homosexual relationship at its core. Uh, so, I think I think like with much of Dave Kerr's criticism, I think that he misses the point. Um, I mean, again, like, this is a gay man making this movie, and I think that he's showing society's disdain for the homosexual relationship while placing an implied homosexual relationship at its core. Yes. And that's one of the things that... And maybe just being nuanced, because, like, it's also, there's also the male homosexual, the, the, the man from Chicago at the end that gets beaten. Yeah. You know, disdain's, he's self-hating. Like he he accepts oh, yeah. the well, he no, accepts he, the beating because he hates his own homosexuality. He, he wants to be beaten. Right. I think yeah. that's part of. I, I think he's, I think he's a masochist, and it gets away from him because he wants Joe Buck to like punish him for his impulses. Kind of. Yes. No. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No. That's what's going on there. Yeah. But 
Yeah, he's a self-hating. He's a, he's a self-hating guy. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's only showy in the sense that they're both like big personalities, but they're they're, they're both pretty nuanced performances. I think. Like, yeah, I no, I agree. I mean, John Voight. John Voight's a pretty intelligent person, and he's playing a guy that has like an abject lack of intelligence in a lot of ways. And Hoffman's working against type two to some degree with his like I mean when he's quiet and it's like just the two of them, that's probably more in line with real Hoffman. But like the the showy the showiness of Razzo Rizzo like um, is acting like yeah, that's just, not who Dustin Hoffman is. No, I mean, but it's it's acting on Rizzo's part too. It's like, well, sure, sure, yeah, it's absolutely. it's yeah. being ostentatious right. in order to hustle. Somebody. Yeah, the famous line of "I'm walking here," you know. Yeah. Like I mean, yeah, I mean like. <clears throat> In the quiet moments when he's telling, um, you know, Joe, you know, you got to call me, like, Enrico or whatever his name is, you know, don't stop calling me Ratso, I'm not Ratso in my own house. When he talks about his father, like, dying from, like, you know, breathing in the shoeshine chemicals and how he was hunchbacked and he doesn't want to live that life. And, I mean, that's actually a really brilliant scene and a really depressing scene because... Rizzo's like bearing like this part of his soul to Joe <clears throat> and all Joe sees is they can earn a quick couple of dollars by you know Ratso like getting down there and shining some shoes even though that like breaks the last vestige of pride that Ratso might have in himself right, as a his, human being his dad's shining shoes right? yeah well his dad yeah, died right, right yeah he claims right. that his dad died from right from inhaling the fumes right, yeah, yeah, black yeah, right, from yeah, shoe shine yeah, yeah. Um, right. but I mean like that's his but he'll do it for Joe though he does it because he feels right. like that's right, yeah. what's going to get them the, the $20. Sure. Right, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just, yeah. Um, yeah, Cisco talks about the performances. I mean, he says, I mean, this is contemporaneous, but I mean, he says that he hadn't at this point seen a pair of mar- such marvelous acting performances in the same movie ever. Um, by this point, he gave it three and a half stars. Ebert ends up giving it three like two decades later um, on his second viewing where I think initially he might have given it four. Um, I do think he makes a good point and this will be the last thing that I use from this to talk about this is um, he talks about how um, he said what happened in Midnight Cowboys that um, we've done our own editing job on it in terms of our hindsight. We've forgotten the excesses and detours and remember the purity of the central character's and the Voight and Hoffman performances, seeing the movie again was a reminder of what else, unfortunately, it contains. And he's talking about, like, the um, party scene and stuff like that. Um, really? Which I I agree. I, I thought it was the worst part of the movie. Like, was it seemed completely unnatural to me, like, that they would be in that environment. Um, I didn't... I, I thought it would be a... T- a party scene might make sense, but I didn't think that Warhol like esque party is is the place. But. So I'm going to argue against you mm-hmm. and Eber here in the sense that one of the things that happened at these Warhol parties is they pulled like fringe people that they would just meet on the streets, mm-hmm. like people that didn't necessarily fit with their I don't know like weirdo outsider like mm-hmm. aesthetic. But that they could bring in, and then they would like just put a camera on them and film them. And that was one of Warhol's big things. That's how, like, a lot of those people that gained like notoriety through like the factory were discovered. They were just people on the street that they pulled off. So honestly, like, 
I I think that scene might go on a little too long. It's it's way too long. Um, but at the same time, I I don't think it's it's close to like a fourteen minute scene. I don't it's think it's so necessarily quick. like out of the realm of possibility. Not out of the realm of possibility. It seemed forced to me. Like it, it, the whole thing seemed forced to me. Uh, just that whole scene, just kind of like it, it's it seemed like it was. I don't know. I, I wonder. I, I wonder if Schlesinger knew. Like anyone from the factory, and maybe that's how. Oh, I'm sure because there's real. I mean, during my research, it seemed like there was real Warhol like acolytes and stuff in that scene. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, don't um, know I'm pretty. Was. I'm pretty sure that's that's right. So, I mean, in that respect, like these guys are, like they're juxtaposed against that. I think right, and I think it shows. I think it shows that Ratso, despite all of his bravado can never fit in that world and buck despite his genuine naivete maybe to be nice about it like actually could like blend in that world and be successful and i think that's what makes buck like kind of giving up all of that to take care of his friend like that much more meaningful sort of so i mean i agree like it's a long scene but i think it's kind of an important scene yeah, I just think it could have been done outside that exact environment. It just felt like a little like I I, I get what you're saying. Like, it's also I know you know a lot about the Warhol yeah. like environment and stuff, so it's like you know that's and that's fine. But I just know I just thought it could have been slightly different. Yeah. Um. Okay. So you want to move on to number three? Number three. Okay. Okay. So number three on your list, we have 1970s five easy five easy pieces uh, directed by Bob Raffleson. Starring Jack Nicholson in one of his one of his couple breakout performances in Karen Black, we have eighty seven percent from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, but interestingly seventy percent from their top critics, uh, which I found interesting, and then eighty four percent from audiences. Um, you want to go ahead and explain this movie a little bit? So Nicholson plays um, Bobby Dupree, who's a classically trained concert pianist who's kind of slumming it in Texas uh, working on oil rigs um, living with his waitress girlfriend uh, Rayette uh, best friends with uh, another couple also implied by him that kind of like it had been beneath his station cheats on his girlfriend all the time is really like callous and mean to her obviously like no real affection it's just kind of like a for him a relationship of convenience um quits his job and goes to los angeles to see his sister who's uh, another classically trained musician who's recording finds out that his father suffered from a couple of major strokes and decides that he needs to go to washington state to visit reluctantly takes rad along um because she threatens to kill himself or kill herself uh when he gets there there's like a whole thing on the road where they pick up two possibly lesbian hippie hitchhikers. One of whom's obsessed with filth, leads to one of the more famous scenes in the movie, which is the chicken salad scene in a diner. Uh, when they get to Washington, he's embarrassed by Rayette, who's very down to earth, I guess is a nice way to put it, like uncultured. Um, ends up becoming infatuated with his brother's girlfriend, who's another like aspiring pianist. Um, bunch of uncomfortable stuff, like with the family, ends up kind of breaking down, trying to connect with his father, um, and then tries to get Catherine, who's the brother's girlfriend, to run away with him, and she rejects him, and then kind of ends up just leaving, you know, pregnant Karen Black 
at a roadside gas station where he hitches a ride north with a truck driver hauling a load of logs. Um, like you said, really kind of maybe like Nicholson's first like true, I don't know, like masterful performance yeah. from an acting standpoint. Um, really commands this like the entire movie. Um, underrated performance, I think, by Karen Black, who's maybe like the most tragic character in the movie. Yeah. Um, really weird family dynamics between him and his family. Um, he's a very angry man mm-hmm. <clears throat> at a lot of things, and a lot of them seem self-inflicted. Um, is on some instances pretentious, like doesn't let Brayette listen to um, Tammy Wynette because he says that it's not real music, but then defends her against like some pretentious house guests when they're at the family estate who are kind of mocking her for being low class. <clears throat> Confused, doesn't know what he wants. Um, again, just a really, really angry performance of a guy who is at times self-destructive, but has a weird like sense of self-worth. Um, I don't know it's a really it's a difficult movie to watch in a lot of ways because there's nothing really redeeming about Bobby Dupee Um, he really is just kind of like a colossal asshole from start to finish Um, even in moments where he's trying to like express his affection for um, Catherine you know who's the girlfriend um, still comes across as like like degradating to other people and doesn't value other people's worth. Um, seems like he's a guy that can't find happiness in anything. Um, and again, like, you know, has this pseudo friendship with another guy that works on the rigs with him, um, who he obviously feels himself to be superior to, even though he enjoys his company, um, has no interest in being a father when he finds out that Ray had is pregnant. Um, only takes her along because, I mean, he's really angry at himself for having that emotion where he feels like he doesn't want her to kill herself. Um, she's incredibly sad because she, like, just takes any abuse, including adultery and, like, verbal abuse and just the sense that he's got no interest in her as a human being um, because she feels like she loves him. Um, yeah. She thinks she loves him, I guess. Well, she's extremely codependent as well. I mean, it's hard to break that cycle when somebody's that codependent yeah I mean I think maybe from her perspective like from a character standpoint I think that because she knows that like his station in life is so much higher than hers that she kind of feels like almost starstruck by him because he is like intelligent and well spoken and talented and she just wants some of that and she feels like she should love him and towards the end of the movie after they left the family estate she says that he should appreciate her because no one's ever going to love him as like hard or as good as she loves him. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of the thing that ends up driving him away from her. Um, kind of, a, in, in my opinion, like an archetypical movie of the seventies in the sense that it's a small story. Like there's not a huge amount of plot, but there's a lot of complexity contained in the small story just in terms of, like, the character development and, like, the dynamics of the family with him 
who, you know, he obviously feels like he's more estranged from them than they feel from him. Um, to them, he's kind of just, like, gone and come back, sort of. Like, he was on sabbatical almost. Like, I guess Carl, his brother, sort of says that doing the things that he feels he needs to do, like, to get it out of his system or whatever. Um, <clears throat> he's obviously, like, an incredibly talented musician, but just unwilling to, like, live that life for whatever reason. I mean, I guess, like, self-loathing in that respect. Um, it's on this list mostly because of the relationship between Bobby and uh, Rayette. Um, she's a very believable, like, very human character. Um, and the way that he treats her is so... I mean, it goes beyond being passive-aggressive to just being, like, outright aggressive... Um, telling her at one point, like, I don't know what you expected. I never said this was going to turn into anything. After knowing that she's pregnant and knowing that she's threatened to kill herself if, if he leaves her, like, that's just how callous he is. Um, and never has any intention of, like, you know, being honorable and staying with her. I mean, to him, again, he, she's just a, she's a comfort <clears throat> or a convenience, I suppose. Um, really great small performances. Um, there's a really, really sort of sad scene early on where he's mistaken for a local used car salesman by a couple of women in a bowling alley, one of whom is Sally Struthers. Um, ends up having sex with, with her on multiple occasions, one time not coming home to Rayette, and then after he finds out that Rayette is probably pregnant, goes and sleeps with Sally Struthers. Um, I don't know, just a, a, a terrible human being. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you notice that he's wearing a shirt that says Triumph when he has sex with Sally Struthers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, again, there's some really, really memorable scenes, uh, specifically after he's picked up the hitchhikers, um, the one woman who's obsessed with the idea that everything's filthy and that humankind is filthy and we have too many things and we should just get rid of everything. Um, they go to a diner where he just wants to order an omelet and toast and that's not on the menu and... Uh, pretty pretty brilliant scene where he orders a chicken salad sandwich, but hold like all the ingredients of the chicken salad sandwich, and then hold the chicken. He tells the waitress she can hold it between her thighs, yeah. um, or between her legs. And then when she kicks him out, he uh, a recurring theme like he wipes everything off the table, like smashes the glasses. Yeah. I mean, a lot of pent up rage and a lot mm-hmm. of it's not even pent up because he releases it like pretty freely, yeah, um, without much overt. I guess, like, description of why he's doing that. Yeah. Um, but really a bleak look at, like, people, how people can treat each other. Um, very bleak outlook on, like, just this man in particular who's obviously, like, creative and intelligent and just despises everything around him, including himself. Um, I, I think that in his mind, he feels that um, the girlfriend... Uh, Catherine is maybe like a way out of this despondency but not realizing that he's starting, number one, he's starting a relationship by trying to take away his brother's fiance and he's so he doesn't care about her opinions, he mocks her when she tries to talk about like how beautifully he played um, whatever, I can't remember what piece it is that he played for but just, or Chopin that's what it was, because he said, you know you pretended to have emotions and I pretended to play Chopin or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. 
but just a, a monstrous guy and yeah I mean, also I completely ineffectual in a lot of ways like for all of his anger and all of his like bravado he's got nothing like he gets beaten up by the male nurse later in the movie um consistently like just sort of beaten down verbally by the people that he's like talking to um even his sister uh tita, tita yeah. who is the only person i think that really like truly loves him for who he is he you know he, he can't like just be a decent person for her which is all that she wants really um but yeah just there's not much positive out of this movie but at the same time it's like almost impossible i think to like take your eyes away from it when you're watching yes, it. It's yeah. an incredibly, like, powerful movie for it's, being as small as it is. It's like a, yeah, it's like a cinematic train wreck. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a very apt, concise character analysis of Bobby. I mean, I pretty much every note that I took, or mentally or physically, um, you, you hit on all those things. I, I was more, I guess, based off all of that, I, I was more fascinated that, um, how much I absolutely despised Bobby watching it, rewatching it in for the first time in like twenty years yeah. um, or more. Um, at this point in my life, I absolutely despised everything about him. Yeah, it's weird too because when I first saw this movie, I actually kind of I don't know if sympathize isn't the right word, maybe identified a little bit mm-hmm. with the Bobby character, just like that feeling that. I, I wondered the same about myself, but I can't remember myself at that time to see if I sympathize with him or not. I mean, I, I know that I thought he was terrible, but I think that I, like, sort of felt a little bit of camaraderie in his just, like, withering criticism of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and watching it, and I've probably seen this movie, like, four times maybe in my life. Um, today, I actually watched it again in just anticipation of this because it's probably been about ten years since I've seen it. <clears throat> but just, like... I was actually kind of taken aback by how much I despised him this time. Yeah. And, I mean, it's a credit to Nicholson's performance because he really is just playing, I mean, in a lot of ways, kind of like a precursor the to... Jack Torrance. Yeah, to Jack Torrance, like what he... I thought the exact same thing. Yep. Um, a guy that is prone to drinking, is prone to violence, is yeah. prone to feeling like he's somehow beset by the expectations of other people or the world. And he can only, like, lash out by being, like, an absolute, like, asshole. Um, There's a petulant child that's, like, buried, like, inside of him somewhere that he overreacts when he doesn't get what he wants. Yeah. But at the same time, he has, like you said, he has no idea what he wants. So it makes a really hard character to sympathize with and watch, I think, at least according to who I am now. I mean, you you get the impression that, and again, this is never... I think overtly stated in the movie, but you get the impression that out of all the siblings, all of whom are musically inclined, that he was the most talented and had the most promise. And it was the most, I don't know, like damning that he decided to leave, you know, being like a successful musician. Right. Um, Talks about playing like piano at like a Vegas showgirl review. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is funny because early again in the movie when they're listening to Tammy Wynette it's Stand By Your Man you know is the song that opens the movie mm-hmm. um, and it's really like I guess apropos because that really is like what Rayette like that idea is what she takes with her through the rest of the movie mm-hmm. um, she actually expresses her emotions through Tammy Wynette because like a lot of her most emotional scenes are the backdrop of like those songs mm-hmm. um, 
but he is super critical of the fact that this isn't music that it's not like worth listening to and yet he'll debase himself by playing like you know I don't know like Tim Pan Alley songs and a, a Vegas show review <clears throat> just because in some ways it's like the ultimate like middle finger to his life and yeah. his past yeah <clears throat> I I think Ebert Ebert gives the movie four stars <clears throat> And I'm going to skip what he talks about the reception, but um, it's probably worth reading if you want to read Ebert's review just because he talks about the historical context of the movie a little bit and how kind of like what a revelation it was for the time period, um, the story. But on specifically on Bobby, he, he says the five easy pieces about a character who doesn't fit in the movie. There's not a scene where he's comfortable with the people around him, not a moment when he feels at home. The movie's stories traces a journey back through a life where Bobby, in his own view, disappointed people could not be counted on, misbehaved, and underachieved. The only person in the movie who openly criticizes him is the one who knows him the least. His family and his waitress girlfriend overlook or forgive his flaws, but he cannot forgive himself. And he goes on to kind of be sympathetic. He's sympathetic towards Bobby, it seems. Um, which I found interesting because... Um, given the fact that I'm less sympathetic towards him. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he wrote this, I think, I think he wrote this in the early 2000s, this review, like, he, he kind of updated his, his, his previous review, uh, which he did with some famous movies sometimes. Um, I don't think that uh, Raffleson, like, and certainly the screenwriter, which is credited, like, it's a male name, I think, but it's, like, it's a, it's a woman who wrote it, like, under a pen name. Um, I don't think that they try to sympathize with that character at all. I think it's pretty just stark look when I watch it of not... Because they could have given him more of a backstory. They could have talked about the relationship with his father. Because if there's any truth to the idea that he was playing that Chopin at like four years old, doesn't he claim that? Yeah. Um, or eight or something like Whatever it is. I mean, it's, I think it's pretty young. I think it's four. I mean... It's a, it's, you can imagine it's a very dictatorial household, you know, very stressful, you know, um, very, you know, with his father being the taskmaster. You would think they could tell that story and maybe get, get some sympathy on him a little bit, but they don't. They, they choose not to do that whatsoever. Yeah, I think that's on purpose. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think the thing that brings Bobby back home is the fact that this man who, you know, was, like you said, like a taskmaster and... Like, definitely the guy that pushed them into music <clears throat> is now incapable of expressing himself. And that's that's referred to several times where Tita's kind of trying to say, like, oh, you know, he still, like, understands and he can still respond. And Bobby sort of, like, laughs it off and says, you know, because he says they can respond. He can show you if he likes something or doesn't like something. And Bobby's like, oh, it's a huge range of emotion he's got there or some, something along those lines. So I think you're right, and I think that if if you flesh this movie out more, and maybe make it like another half hour where you talk more about those things, maybe you do make Bobby a sympathetic character. Mm -hmm. But I think I think it's on purpose that he's not sympathetic, and I think they give you enough clues where you could see like maybe in some way what shaped him to be this person, but not excuse any of his behavior. Right. In being shaped, and up. that's how I see it. Yeah, um, there's one other just quick review that I just want to mention a couple lines from um, Nick Pickerton, The Village Voice. 
um, I think has a pretty good like historical look at this when he says that um, that the the director and screenwriter are trading the uh, Easy Rider's counterculture mythopoetics um, for a study um, in the charisma of disdain and how rebellion and loudishness are now like one and the same. Um, and I think. I wonder if that's like, you know, I'd have to go back and read Ebert again, but it's like, I wonder if that's what the revelation was in some way, is this is kind of breaking the 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 counterculture movies that were coming out in like the mid to late 60s of like showing the rebel, because that's what he is at his heart, that's oh, yeah. what Bobby is, it's like kind of breaking the idea of like, rather than mythologi- mythologizing the hero, the, the, the rebel hero in these movies, this is one of the first ones that takes a cold, hard look at, like, what that personality really is. Um, yeah, just an ineffectual dick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That uses his personality and intelligence to bully sure. people into... Yeah, because in hindsight, like, when I think about it like that, um, it, it really kind of struck me when I read those that from Pinkerton. I met a lot of those people, like those, old, those older boomers who were sure. ineffectual dicks. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's where they ended up, and that's probably who they always were, despite whatever narrative they crafted for themselves. Yeah, because you get the impression that Bobby feels like he was owed something, but even though he had all these gifts and the ability to achieve them, he wanted, like, it was never enough, maybe. Mm -hmm. And it's also interesting that he references Easy Rider, because I, so you're taking people that are inherently criminals and you're crafting like again like a, a mythos around them as like these modern day cowboys and it's the same thing with um i mean like true romance has you know the reference things that we've talked about before true romance has elements of that there's plenty of movies that are like road movies or counterculture movies from the 60s and 70s and even like up through the modern day <clears throat> where these people are like portrayed almost as heroes but this is a road movie where the hero is like ostensibly the villain and it really is like an interesting look at I don't know like the like this feeling of like maybe like wealthy disconnect or something like I don't even know how to describe it but like you talk about you know there's a lot of talk about like white privilege anymore and like Bobby is obviously you know a symbol of white privilege like a guy who's had everything given to him and has rejected it for no other reason other than it's not <coughs> like maybe he just can't be happy. I don't know, but yeah. I, well, and the thing is, is like he he gets the he gets the play act. He gets to slum, always having that safety net behind him too. Oh yeah, yeah. Cause so it's like there. So there's no consequences to a lot of his behavior. Uh, but there's all. ultimate consequences to anyone that's around him. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, he he lies to the. Sally Struthers' character, um, yeah. Betty or whatever, in order to get her to sleep with him. Um, he strings Rayette along just because it's a place for him to live. You know, he works at this terrible job just because it's easy for him to do and he doesn't even care about doing it. Um, the only the only real moment where... There's a couple moments where maybe some humanity shines through for Bobby. And the first is when after having a fallen out with um, Elton, who's his friend that works on the rig with him, the police come to arrest Elton, and all he sees is his friend getting, like, hassled by two guys in suits, and he immediately runs over and <coughs> tries to save his friend without any thought for his own mm-hmm. safety, um, which is a pretty selfless act. Sure. 
And then a couple small, the, the scene when he first goes to see Tito, when she's like basically having an emotional breakdown when she's playing this piece at a recording studio and he's very human with her and very nurturing and, mm. you know, really is looking out for her. And then like later at the end of the movie, when he's getting ready to leave, when he shows some, some, com- even though he was going to leave without saying goodbye, he still shows compassion and affection for her. But again, like other than that, there's no like humanizing yeah. moments for him and nothing that's necessarily sympathetic. Right. Yeah, I know. It's um it was it was rougher than I expected watching this movie. I, I didn't expect to have that reaction for some reason. I don't remember having that reaction previously. Um so it was a little surprising yeah. to me. But I mean definitely one of my favorite movies of the seventies. Yeah. Um Raffleson has directed some other really good movies during like that same like time period <clears throat> with uh, King of Marvin Gardens and Postman Always Rings Twice. Yeah. Um, but this is like by far his, his best yeah. movie. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite Nicholson performances ever. Um, maybe maybe the biggest performance before he becomes like quote unquote Jack Nicholson, right. where he's like his performances are more like him as a personality than it is a character. Sure. But like this, the last detail, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Like there's this string of movies around this time period, The Passenger, yeah. where he's just like a virtuoso almost in terms of just mm-hmm. creating these. I don't know, like disaffected, but charismatic. Yeah, like yeah. male characters that just have some trouble connecting with like the rest of humanity. Yeah. And this by far is like his like angriest and. I don't yeah. know, like least human, or least humane, I guess, right. even though it's a really human performance. Mm-hmm. And I think you see a lot of people that you know in Bobby Dupee, yeah. <clears throat> like people that maybe have somehow, somehow like fallen below their station by their own device or, you know, by circumstance that are just like angry for no reason with no way of like correcting like that anger. I wonder like what I said earlier in terms of the way I framed it in the sense of that he's someone who... Um, reacts poorly and petulantly to not getting the things that he wants but not knowing really what he wants isn't a reaction to um, you know friends and stuff like that like the you know like uh, behave you know in a similar manner like in the past you know in the in recent years and maybe even a little bit to myself at times like you know throughout the past 20 years or whatever since I've you know I wonder if there's like a seeing it in others that you're close to or even seeing it in some way in yourself, yeah. you know, and, like, hating that element of yourself, possibly. I mean, I guess the older you get, <clears throat> the further you get from, like, your quote-unquote dreams or whatever, and maybe that is just, yeah. like, something that happens, but I don't know. I mean... I remember Bowie saying one time about um, the girl in Life on Mars that um, at the time he could empathize with her and now he can only partially sympathize with her. And it's like... I can't sympathize with Bobby, but it's like, it's, it's a similar feeling. It's like at one time I used to sympathize with him and it's like, you know, it's a step further. I used to sympathize with Bobby, I think at one point. Yeah. And now I can't any, I can't, I can no longer sympathize with him. I think that's like kind of like the final thing I take away from it is that like, I used to know that person, I think. Um, and, and I, and I don't know that person anymore. I can't accept that person anymore in the end. But yeah, it's a really good movie. It's, it is. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, uh, yeah, good performance. I really like um, uh, Lil Smith too as Tita. I think it's a really underrated performance in that yes. movie um, yeah. from her. Same with um, Fanny Flagg in her brief 
um, I mean, I guess it's like probably like 12 or 13 minutes. Yeah. As the hitchhiker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yep, yep. I agree. Yeah. Which is also a really funny commentary on, I think, the, like the, the dropout culture of the time, mm-hmm. like the end of the 60s, where this mm-hmm. woman who is just so specific in her hatred of the world and so unfocused and consistently saying, but I don't want to talk about it, I don't want to talk right, about right, it, and yeah. then does nothing but talk about it. Yeah. And has this idea that because she saw a picture of Alaska being like white, right. that it's like clean and she needs to go yeah. there because it's clean. Right. And even then, like, he can't help himself by telling her, no, no, it's just... Oh, yeah. It's yeah. all melted or whatever. Right, right. <clears throat> right. Yeah. So... Yeah. No. Yeah, but really good movie. Can't help but be a dick. Yeah. Definitely worth watching. Yeah. Okay. So moving on to number two, uh, we have The Lower Deaths, uh, 1957, directed by Akira Kurosawa, starring Toshiro Mifune, um, which is, I guess, the most famous of like Kurosawa's actors um, in this. Um, Ron Tomatoes, uh, 80% critics, 80% audience. Hmm. Uh, did you want to go ahead and just explain a, a little bit about what the movie's about? So it's based on a play by, is it Maxi? Gorka. Gorka. Gorka? Yeah. Um, it's a tenement house in Edo era Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of, there's like prostitutes, gamblers, um, thieves, just general like dregs a society living in this tenement house. Um, Mufune's character is a thief who's having an affair with the landlady, but is actually like in love with her younger, like more attractive sister. Um, the landlady conspires, develops a plot to have Mufune's character kill her husband um, and is trying to seduce him to do so, but he kind of sees through it. And then the husband finds out there's an affair and I don't know, it's just, it's really like a really a harsh look, I think, at like humans at their lowest point, but also like an interesting look at the fact that people can still have good in them, like even at their lowest points. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. Um, it's one of the. I mean, Kurosawa definitely has like his blocks of movies, and he's got you know, his more modern films and he's got his <coughs> like samurai epic films. And this kind of falls in between those where it's obviously like set in the time period of his samurai epics, but with none of the like grandeur of, you know, Hidden Fortress or Ron or Ra- Rashomon or any of that. Um, looking at a class of people that he doesn't usually focus on in those movies. I mean, typically his heroes are, even if they're Ronin, they're still you know, like honorable men and these people kind of lack honor. Um, Some really, like to me, the things that are the most depressing and it's kind of played like for black comedy, I guess, in a lot of ways is just like how filthy it looks. Like it feels, it feels dirty like the entire time you're watching it. And it mostly just takes place, I guess, right in like the tenement house and the areas like right around it. But I mean, it's in black and white. So like the, the way the shadows are filmed and the way that Kurosawa presents, like, I don't know, just like the interior decor, like it feels like you can feel like the grit on everything and you can feel like the decay and it sort of is, you know, I mean, the Mifune character 
wants to be better than the thief that he is and kind of like has that in him, but is sort of brought low by um, the landlady and just his like interactions with him. Um, definitely not. There's really no, really no redemption, I guess, in it. Like it's it's a movie about. Like, even though he feels like he could be redeemed through the younger sister that he's in love with. I mean, she's mistreated. There's just so much, like, I don't know, so much sadness in all the characters. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's anything necessarily. Well, I'll, Bosley um, Crother from the New York Times, like the old critic, um, was a critic for decades back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um <clears throat> says that the purpose of the picture is to make one suffer and sympathize with them. And he says that the darkly imagistic technique achieves this depressing aim. Um, but on like a grander scale, he thinks that the only people that will actually care about this movie are people that are really in the Kurosawa uh, when it comes down to it. That could be true. Um, but, but I think like what you were saying about like how dirty it is, it's like one of the, one of the main criticisms of this is the... Um, is the stage play aspect of it. And it's usually yeah. from um, audiences and a couple critics, but it's usually um, that they just don't like the fact that it's so kind of such a tight, small story. Like, you know, that it just like focuses on, cause what you, you go outside the tenement, like the house, like the, the tenement house once, right? Like out into the courtyard. Is that right? Maybe twice. Maybe twice. But there's I mean, there's a scene like behind the house, and then you know, there's like a scene early on with the leaves falling down, like from the corner. Yeah, I mean, and, I mean, that's just gonna be always be a taste thing. I think with a lot yeah. of people is like you know whether you can deal with that or not. It's like I love Dogville, you know, and it's yeah. like, but you know, like as as simple as that is with that um, that stage aspect. But I mean, I love small movies. I love yeah. movies that are about like because ostensibly, like the entire plot of this movie is that you know, Otsugi or whatever, the landlady wants the Mifune character to kill her husband, and he refuses, but then kills her husband accidentally anyway, and then basically loses the love of the younger sister because she feels like they did it on purpose, because that's how he he portrays it that way in order to get the landlady in trouble, and they end up getting, like, so even though, like, he has the ability to redeem himself, you know he's at the end, like, he still is arrested for the murder of this yeah. man that he never intended to commit. And the only reason he murdered the man is because he was trying to defend, like, the woman that he was actually in right. love with. And it's just... Reminds me, I mean, it's very... Like, I know he... Uh, I know Kurosawa definitely likes some Shakespeare because he... Uh, oh, yeah. But, um... Well, a lot of Shakespeare. Right, yeah. But it's like he, um... It, it reminds me of, like, a... Things like Lear, in a lot of ways, in the sense of like that, in the sense that there is no justice in the world. Yeah. Um, that it's like, in fact, like trying to trying to achieve some sort of just possible justice is like you know the ultimate injustice. Ha- it's like that kind of turnabout that Shakespeare will do in his tragedies a lot of times. Um, yeah, where it's like he's trying to protect his love and then he ends up committing the very thing that like you know so yeah you destroyed the thing that you actually right like care about yes right right um which is interesting because then he actually makes King Lear right yeah right a couple decades later right yeah and Ron um I don't know it's I I actually really enjoy the stage performance aspect of it um I had seen this movie 
probably more than a decade after I had watched the majority of Kurosawa's like major works. Mm-hmm. So this was something where it was released by Criterion. I just happened to pick it up. Um, I had no foreknowledge of it at all. I don't even know that I knew this movie existed and was just blown away. Number one by like Mifune and we'll talk about this with the next movie too, but I feel like certain like great directors from that time just had these actors that were and muse isn't the right word, but were like their, their archetypes. And Mifune definitely was Kurosawa's like archetypical actor. And in a way where some of my favorite performances in like Japanese film come from Shiro Mifune working with Akira Kurosawa. And Mifune is so different than like his his standard character. I mean, he is like a he's a thief and a scoundrel and it's such a powerful performance. And again, I mean, I think like heightened by the fact that you know, you watch something like, again, like Rashomon or Throne of Blood or Hidden Fortress, which are black and white or Seven Samurai, <clears throat> and they're beautiful films. I mean, they're the shot composition is just like amazing, and the way that you know the the dark interplays with the light in those movies is like so beautiful. And this movie is like the antithesis of that. Like, it's not a beautiful movie, but because it's filmed in that way, like it's it's just as beautiful as a result. Like, if that makes any sense, yeah. And even though, like, there's nothing that makes you feel good coming out of this movie, like, I mean, it really is, like, fully, like, a tragedy in a lot of ways. Um, it's so, I don't know, it's so mesmerizing and amazing. Like, it, it's, it's definitely one of my favorite Kurosawa movies. Um, and I had no idea, like, I've never read any criticism of it, so I had no idea that it was, like, that low for being, like, the work of, I mean, somebody who's probably like one of the greatest masters of cinema, like ever, you know, for it to be like. Well, I mean, just to be somewhat fair, um, there's not a lot of reviews on on Rotten Tomatoes, um, like overall, um, and top critics, because it's so old, um, the 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 reviews tend not to really exist or be published anywhere or um, up on the web anywhere, I guess. I wonder how it was received contemporaneously in Japan at the time. Yeah, I have no idea. Like that, I, I mean, I, I would have no. I, I mean, he has he has a pretty large would have volume, no way of knowing that large volume of work that yeah. is lesser seen. And like Criterion, to their credit, has done like an amazing job of like bringing some of those lesser seen movies. Yeah. Um, but when you think of Kurosawa, like there's such a huge like amount of film that is all I don't know like essential I think sure to the time period sure. and. Again, it, it might just be because this was such a revelation to me because it was not what I was expecting and I had no idea that this movie existed when I saw it. But I was like immediately like just entranced by it. And again, like you don't feel good when you finish watching it, but it's still, to me, it's it's one of his most essential movies and mm. one of my favorite Mifune performances. And just from the perspective of like the cinematography, I think it's it's one of his more visually interesting movies to watch. Mm-hmm. And even though it takes place in that small, <clears throat> you know, it's weird. I agree. I think I think because of the small setting, he focuses a lot more on 
the cinematography of the scenes, the mise-en-scene of the yeah. scenes, like, you know, like that look you were talking about with the grit, it's like he can focus on those things a lot more. I and almost, like, fetishize it in some Sure. Ways. I think he can focus on the spatial dynamics and, like, allow people to actually act, like, a lot more than maybe some of the samurai movies where yeah. it allows them a lot more range. I mean, so I think that you get really strong acting performances and a really good setting in this to me it's also story is like kind of depressing yeah it's also because like a lot of his like greatest films or i guess what would be considered his greatest films are so like thematically complex and so like they have such like broad ideals and they involve like so many moving parts that to have a movie that's so small it's just i don't know it's really appealing to me and I, i i love it i love when directors <clears throat> almost like take chances you know what I mean and are willing to make something that isn't like necessarily in their I don't know like I hate the word wheelhouse but like you know what I mean yeah. like it's not like maybe exactly what you would expect but it still is impactful and powerful right. and I don't know like it's one of my favorite Kurosawa movies probably definitely top five I think okay um, let's move on to the number one movie for the week the number one most depressing movie Ingmar Bergman's 1962 film Winterlight, starring Gunnar Bjornstrand and Max von Sydow. Sydow, I think. Oh, I don't want Heister to get mad at him. <laughs> um, so, Rotten Tomatoes audience 92 percent. Critics, take a guess. 70 percent. 75 percent. So, want to explain what 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 the plot of this movie is, and um, what your initial thoughts of it are? So again, like talking about small movies, this is maybe even a smaller movie. Yes. Um, Father Tomas is a disaffected priest of a small town parish. Um, kind of losing his faith in God in a lot of ways. Um, He's approached by a young couple who attend his service who the husband, the Seedow character, is becoming like increasingly paranoid about the possibility of like nuclear holocaust and just wants some reassurance. Um, the pastor agrees to see him like later and basically just destroys his worldview by saying like he doesn't believe in God and he doesn't even know if God exists and the Seedow character kills himself. Um, and I don't even know if, like, Tomas is affected by that, necessarily. Um, but... He's not. Oh. Just... I mean, that's pretty much it. Like, there's a woman that was in love with him um, who he routinely, like, rebuffs her advances. Um, he's just... Which, I mean, that relationship is almost a central part of the entire movie, is, like, that relationship between Tomas and Marta. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, because he completely neglects her, and he's yeah. just cruel to her. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, it's 80 minutes long, yeah. so it's, like... So what about this, like, I'm interested in here, what, what about this is so depressing to you, exactly? So I think the first, I mean, ultimately, it's just his, 
his treatment of other people and how it affects those other people, I guess. And I mean, number one, the the Max von Sydow character is. I mean, he's a his wife is pregnant. You know, they're a young couple. He's obviously like probably affected in a lot of ways that a lot of people around that time were about the thought of like nuclear annihilation and the thing that he has to like his crutch or whatever is religion like that's the thing that he wants to go to to feel like everything's going to be okay and this guy who no matter how he feels could just give like a couple kind words or just say some homilies and save this man just self-servingly destroys him for no reason other than the fact that he can't be bothered to talk about anything but himself you know he can't make it anything than just his own personal like small like petty meanness and i don't here's the thing is like it's i i go i waffle back and forth so much on this character and i mean i just saw this for the very first time in my life yesterday but i've been thinking about him a lot since because um ebert calls him indifferent in his review um he gives it four stars but i mean he calls him indifferent and there's times where i think he's indifferent and there's times where i think he's spiteful and and i and i waffle back and forth on the two so it's like when you say that like i mean i think it's all purposeful i I, see i I, like that scene you're talking about with cedal's character like he doesn't want to give him homilies. Like he 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 says that pretty much. It's like I tried to I tried to like say something to him that was comforting and realized it wasn't true, and I couldn't do it. And that's when I asked him to come back. And when he comes back, he, you know, I'm glad you came back. I I think that's probably somewhat legitimate. But then like as soon as like he gets into it, it's like he purpose. It's like he tells. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's selfish. He has to get his... He's getting his shit in. He's, you know, it's like it's all about him. And he tells this guy who, like, he has some responsibility for. When you have somebody that's suicidal and he's coming... And you're, and you're the pastor and they're coming to you. You have this responsibility. Sure. And it, he tells him that doesn't he doesn't think God exists. Yeah. Which... It's like he makes it about his own demons. Sure. I mean, he's basically using it as his own confession in a lot of ways. Yeah. Which is not at all, like, what his purpose there is, you know. Like, even though the congregation is small, it's like, what, like, six, seven people in, like, the opening scene, and it's said that it gets smaller, like, all the time. He still has that obligation. Yeah. Like, whether you believe in God or religion or whatever, I mean, from just a human perspective, like, if that's your job, that's your job. Right. And it's made even worse by the fact that in the end of the movie, he basically gives a sermon to an empty church for no reason, but talks about... The holiness of God, so that that he's that he's decided that he might not even believe in, yeah, yeah, yeah. and to a woman who definitely is a non-believer, like Marta, who's like still there obsessively, kind of like following along with yeah, him, just because she loves him, right? Because you know, right, obsessively in love, like with him, um, and then um, the uh, Alton, Alton, like yeah, Alton, yeah, and then and then the 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 piano, the organist. Who is certainly, it doesn't seem like he's much of a believer either. So it's like, it's a, he's preaching to, he's preaching for himself. Like, that's the end of that movie, is he's doing it because he's self-aggrandizing. I sure. Think. And also, I think, because it's just what he does. I think he just yeah. doesn't care. And it's like, the moment when he could have cared and actually done good 
he refuses to because he has to make it about him. But the moment where it actually doesn't matter, he's still willing to go out and talk about the holiness and greatness of God. And it's, it really is like, and a lot of these movies, and I, I don't want to sound like, like a broken record or whatever, but it's just about the, like the smallness of man and just how like mean people can be to each other. Um, that there's two, two things I really liked about this movie like having seen it for the first time I love the choice when he's reading the letter to have her talking to the camera Marta yeah. um, and, and, and like kind of you know speak that letter um, the scene where he breaks her down and tells her how he feels about her is one of, one of the more dev- one of the more dev- devastating five minutes of like film I've watched yeah, in a really long time um and the thing is, is he, she says something like about how, like, you know, he says, stop crying, you know, stop, you know, stop cry, or something about crying. And she says, you always tell me that when I'm crying. This isn't the first time this has happened. It's like, and, and you realize that this is a long relationship oh, yeah. that's been going on between these two. A couple years, I think she says at one point that it's been going on. But it's like, this isn't the first time this falling out's happened. He continuously tells her, I think, a lot of times, like, about how, what he feels about her. And it's brutal. Um, it's, it's really brutal. Uh, God, I hate this character so much. Like he's, he's pretty awful. awful. Yeah, and he he tries to justify it. His treatment of of Marta specifically by the fact that she'll never measure up to his dead wife. But like that's just an excuse, right? And it really is just that he's a small, petty, mean man who can't bring himself I mean in a lot of ways like an analyst to um, you know Bobby Dupee you know that Mm -hmm. he's only saying these things because he can't care about another person like he can't bring himself to even show the smallest dignity or compassion to another human when his whole job is supposed to be providing guidance and compassion Mm -hmm. to parishioners Mm -hmm. and I'm curious like I don't know I don't for as much as I love Bergman, I don't know much about Bergman's like personal feelings, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering how Bergman is like his views on religion because it almost feels like like a condemnation maybe of, of church or a condemnation of like you putting your faith in another man, like in man to tell you the words of God. I think Bergman, from what I can gather um, through looking at some of this was dealing with a lot of his own spiritual problems, um, especially during this trilogy of movies, uh, and is kind of exploring those problems. Uh, Stanley Kaufman, who was a contemporary critic at the time, like uh, uh, questions the movie a little bit based on that because he says that like the problem here of like loss of faith seems to be like something of relevance, but it never really hits home well enough. It's like we get it, but we don't quite get it. Like. Um, said something about how like the, the arrows don't pierce like when it comes to like exploring that central problem of like a like a loss of faith yeah um the silence of god is uh, as the pastor Tom, uh, pastor thomas says um it doesn't explore that well enough but i i wonder i wonder if kaufman's like missing the point to some degree um is this isn't about that problem necessarily it's about the problem of the people that like what you're saying it's the problem of the people that we're listening to about those issues, you know, and because they're just, they're just humans. Yeah. 
Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's certainly, like, you, you talk about the trilogy. So the trilogy, which generally considered to be the trilogy of films, is um, uh, Through a Glass Darkly, this movie, and The Silence, mm-hmm. and all of which kind of focus on the idea of, like, what is God's love or what is like God's voice or what is it that like connects you to the idea of something greater than yourself. Um, and this one like distinctly makes it seem, I mean, I think it what describes it, what is like the spider God or whatever. And he equates like God is to suffering as opposed to God as to love. And it's just such a bleak, like look at, isn't there something with that spider in, um, Scarab Darkly? Or uh, Scanner Darkly. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that movie. <laughs> I'll make you talk about it someday. someday. <clears throat> um, isn't there a spider? Yeah, I, I think Darkly. Yeah, it's yeah, been yeah. Like, it's been a really long time yeah. since I've seen through a glass yeah. darkly. Which I, I mean, I love a, for some reason it sparked a memory when he talks about the spider god, like <clears throat> uh, in that little speech. But the other I thing think, too that I love about this movie is. Um, Bergman's like longtime collaborator in uh, Sven Nyqvist, who's a cinematographer. Yeah. For being, I mean, what is it? It's basically like four locations, I guess, throughout the movie. Um, it's just so beautifully shot. And like the way they shoot the snow and like the cars in the snow and the trees and like the interior of the rectory and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's um, like I love, I, I think that Nyqvist is maybe my favorite cinematographer in terms of like black and white films i mean i think that bergman's movies are probably like the most beautiful black and white films ever shot um and for being like such a small movie and really about like i mean really just like at its core it's just about two interactions like him and cedow's family and him and marta but i don't know it just it like he infuses like so much like life in those scenes and so much I don't know like depth and beauty even though it's not like a beautiful movie at all and it really is like super small in terms mm-hmm. of the scope it just it, I don't know I don't know I wish I, I wish I could see that like I, I, I think it's really competently shot I, I think I think that's one of the things like when we talked about it very briefly like right before we started recording I think that's one of the things that like I was maybe a little disappointed in seeing is that like I was expecting Bergman is so good in the cinematography and, you know, everything is so good in his movies that, like, I th- I thought, I, I just thought that there would be more. And it's, like, I think it's very competently shot. And, but I think that, like, there's, um, I don't know. I just, I, I don't think there's, like, a, I just didn't feel, like, a greatness to it. I thought it was just, it told the story the way it needed to be told, probably, See, and told it well. And I feel like the greatness is in small things. Man. So I think that when you... I mean, obviously, Tomas is wearing, like, all black mm-hmm. because he's a priest. But the way that he's shot, it's, there's shadows on his face. And he's never, sure. even, like, when he's preaching, he's not, like, bathed in light. But then when he films, um, you know, Max von Sydow, like, Sydow is, like, bathed in light a lot of times. Like, mm-hmm. his face, and it's because Sydow is, like, blonde and tall. And, yeah. But there's a lot of, like, reflection on his face. So he almost yeah. comes off as, like, numinous, I guess, maybe. Yeah. And I think that in a lot of ways, it's like, it's symbolic of Tomas, like, destroying that in another person Mm. through his own, like, self-loathing and his own, Mm. 
just lack of concern for like yeah he's like it's it's interesting i mean it's it's a guy that's kind of like on autopilot in terms of his kind of indifference in some ways is by his in maybe that's what i like why i keep struggling with that word from ebert is maybe it's like he's so indifferent it's spiteful in nature it's like he cares so little about other people it ends up being spiteful even if that's not the intent behind what he's doing well it's like you see an ant on the ground and you step on an ant i mean you're indifferent to that ant but you're also kind of spiteful for killing the thing sure you didn't need to yeah because it's like when he goes to um cedal's wife and tells her because he takes that responsibility on like i have to go tell her well i mean technically it's his maybe the police police could do do it i mean but it's like he, he, he goes and he does it and it's like, there, it's such a coldness. And it's like, oh. do you want to read the Bible with me? Yeah, because he, he doesn't care about his offer of help. Right. I mean, this is a woman who's devastated. Like, how am I going to care for my children? How right. am I yeah. going to, like, how are it's we like, going to... And, and he's wondering if she wants to read the Bible. Yeah, because and... he doesn't care to help. He's right. Just... Yeah. And again, like, that's the other thing, too. And back to my previous point is at the end of that movie, when he starts, like, giving mass or whatever you call it to an empty church... For no reason other than it's just his job. I mean, the one time that he could have done his job, two times maybe, because both with Marta, like his job is a like a just a man, yeah. and then with Von Sydow's characters, his job is like a religious figure. He completely abandons those roles in for spiteful reasons. Mm-hmm. But then, like when he's going to comfort this grieving widow, it just doesn't even matter. He's just like going through the motions. Yeah. I, I think the I think the most pivotal scene comes right before he goes out um, to preach for the last time is when Alton the, the cripple yeah. comes to him and starts talking about uh, the passion the, yeah the passion of the Christ yeah. and how um, he realized that Christ's suffering wasn't necessarily physical it only lasted a few hours and he even uh, you know, and humbly, but like he even says that my my physical suffering has been longer than his, and it was, it was perhaps worse than his, and that the that the suffering must have been emotional, um, you know, and uh, uh, mental, like you know, yeah. is what where the, the real suffering was of wondering if like you know his father had forsaken him, which is a line, you know, why have you forsaken me? Is a line uttered by the pastor in the in the beginning um, of. The, or like maybe like quarter way through the film yeah, or so, um, and he, you know, and it's like when he talks about like the emotional torture of somebody and how, um, you know, what what it must have been like, you know, in you know in Gethsemane and all those kind of things, like what it must have been like to go through his mind. It's um, and you know the the silence of God and all those things. Yeah, I mean, wasn't, repeat, wasn't, wasn't God's silence worse? Right, right. And it's like, but what he's doing is like the he. he and this is something that's I think really well done. Is that it slowly starts focusing in the camera, like starts like you know uh, zooming on uh, Tom, Thomas, like and he, and it's like it's the moment of the movie. It's like in in a traditional you know, drama or rom-com that, like, wasn't, like, you know, this depressing mess that this movie is, like, it's it would be the revelation. Oh, my God. Marta. This is Marta. This is what she's been going through. Like, that should that should be the revelation, is that she's the one that suffered. Yeah. 
You know, that she's the one that's been going through all this suffering for all this time with her hands, like, you know, with the the rash that causes her hands to, like, have open wounds. And it's like, she's the one that's been suffering. Like, that's really the passion, if anything, is. And, no, it's like the self-fulfilling prophecy type thing. He thinks it's about him. This was his Gethsemane. Like, you know, this this whole, like, past day was his... It's God's silence towards him and not his silence towards... Like everyone else that yes. needs him, to yes, him. right, right, and it's like, and he turns it on himself, and he's the he's the real tragic hero in his mind, yeah. and it's like that's the moment he could have actually had a real revelation, um, but he's incapable. Yes, yeah, so because he actually can't feel the the real power of God, <laughs> like you know, I, he he has no connection to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I um, I love Bergman, and. This is, again, one of the movies where I had seen, like, a large amount of Bergman before I saw this movie. So I saw this, like, much later in my life. Um, Probably, like, early 2000s I saw this. And it was just, like, so impactful and such a revolution. Revelation. And, um, I don't know, I really love it. And I watched it again late last week and loved it just as much. I mean, it's it's a hard movie to say that I love because it's definitely, like, an uncomfortable movie and there's a lot of like big uncomfortable questions that it asks and its central figure is despicable but I, there's something about a movie where yeah. I, I I think after talking about it it's like I probably liked it better than I thought I did at the beginning yeah but I think I what I was probably having a hard time with is I didn't know what to do with it right away yeah like you know because it's like this this is just an awful person and I think like walking away from it I, I was just kind of turned off and questioning about it. I mean, if you think about... Th- this is another director in the same vein of, like, Solence, where I think The Virgin Spring is just as depressing, but is a better movie. But I think the fact that this movie isn't as... And The Virgin Spring is not, like, a neat, like, movie that's tied with a bow or whatever. But it's a lot easier of a narrative to follow because it's more of a story. Whereas this is just more of, like... In the same the same criticism that people have about Lower Depths, this really is just more of like a stage play. You really are just seeing like character Mm -hmm. interactions with very little moving pieces, you know, like connected to those like interactions. And I think the fact that it does like make you question things and the fact that it is like difficult to watch, I think it makes it really profound. And I think it bears multiple viewings in the sense of like questioning your own beliefs and things and questioning really like the motivations of other people and I don't know I mean again I think it's a beautiful movie I think that it's really well directed and it's got some great performances both from the Tomas character and Max yes, Cienas character Tomas was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're all really yeah. really yes, I agree really effective performances so. yeah. I mean Bergman maybe my favorite director of all time mm-hmm. definitely like one of my top five um and just everything like, I've never seen a Bergman movie that I thought was even like mediocre like all of his movies I think are yeah. like even small movies again like to Criterion Collections credit like bringing these small movies out yeah. um, just brilliant okay um, so that's the podcast for this week um, if you wanted to go ahead and friend us on Facebook you can do that at Two Guys Five Movies you can also, if you have any suggestions for top five lists for us, you can email us at twoguys5movies at gmail.com. That's the number two and five, twoguys5movies at gmail.com. 
Uh, just to give you a little preview for the month of October, uh, the first week we're going to be uh, going over the top five foreign psychopath movies um, to kick off like the month of October for Halloween. Uh, the second week of October we will be starting a new series that we're going to be doing, uh, the Third Man series, where we're going to be bringing in one of our friends to talk about a specific director, and Frank and uh, that, per that Third Man will end up... Um, uh, talking about what their favorite movie of a specific director is. We're going to be starting with M. Night Shyamalan. And then uh, the third week we'll be doing the top five horror movies of the 1970s. And then the final week, uh, Halloween week, we will be doing a retrospective of the Phantasm series. So that's our schedule for the next month of what we're going to be releasing. Um, thank you very much for listening. And I hope everybody has a good night. Yep, thanks. Have a good night.